from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. And I'm back with another hour-long edition of Craft, which normally airs with a breezy five minutes on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. But every now and then, my overflowing content, my persistence, and my collection of incriminating photos garners me the opportunity to bring you a full 60 minutes of Craft goodness. Today I'll talk to performers and organizers from this weekend's Columbus Improv Festival. I'll hear some comedy from Ohio State students, and I'll catch up with the writer John Stewart called one of my favorite authors of all time, Sarah Vowell, whose new book was released this week. That's all next on Craft. But first, this message. Saturday, 2 to 4 p.m., that's today, that's right now, at Lucky's Market in Clintonville at 2770 North High Street, WCBE's Jim Coe stretches WCBE's Fall Fun Drive one more day to peddle burgers and brats at Lucky's Grill Out. All proceeds from food sales are donated to 90.5 FM. And there's more! Local troubadour Eric Nassau shall sing the songs of groceries and greenbacks with Kyle Davis pounding out a rhythm on his beatbox. Don't miss the hijinks. They're over at 4 p.m. today. So listen to Kraft and drive to... Lucky's Market in Clintonville. Sarah Vowell is a regular contributor to This American Life, as well as a frequent guest on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. She has written several bestsellers and has recently released Lafayette in the somewhat United States. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Sure. We are going to talk today about your book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. So tell me a little bit about it, how you got started. I had written a short radio piece a few years ago about Lafayette's return trip to America in 1824. I mean, and that story was all about the euphoria of the elderly uh, hero's return to America and... um, he, because he was only 19 when he first volunteered with Washington Army, when he came back in 1824, he was the last living general from the Continental Army, and most of the old revolutionaries were dead or dying. And and um, I, I was so captivated by that story. Just I think the thing that drew me to, to him just as much as his own story was the Americans' affection for him. And, um, but then, um, so that was, that was the draw, just that he was this person that, um, everyone agreed on. I mean, partly it was because he was French and, and, you know, he didn't, there were just so many factions always in America, especially between the North and, and the South. And, um, he belonged to them all because, you know, he was from someplace else. So that just seemed like a lovely topic to just kind of, you know, luxuriate in. And of course, I mean, the thing that drew me to him was this agreement. But then once I got into writing the book and writing about his actual time in the war, the American side in particular, all they do is bigger and um, undermine each other and disagree, and um, so, so the whole story of the war, like Lafayette is, you know, in, at the end of 1777, he'd only been here for like six months. He's writing to George Washington across the camp at, 
at Valley Forge, like, I think you guys could win this if you would just stop fighting each other. You know, like, you can fight the British if you just stop fighting each other. And Washington was like, yes, we do have a fatal tendency toward disunion. Um, and then meanwhile, as I was researching the book, uh, it happened to coincide with the 2013 government shutdown. So, like, I wanted to go to Independence Hall and celebrate the inventions of Independence Hall. But um, because, like, the greatest invention at Independence Hall was the Constitution, which enshrined the separation of powers that made it possible for, you know, uh, the founders' descendants to have this uh dysfunctional government uh, that made it impossible for me to go to Independence Hall because, you know, the lights were turned off because the government was shut down. So, um, so the whole, like every aspect of this story, there's, there's kind of this constant uh, rancor. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's something that, uh, or perhaps a better way of looking at it is tell me about how they overcame that at the time. Uh, The, the te- fatal tendency to disunion that Washington describes, uh, or is it just never, as you say, never overcome? There are never moments of unity except possibly uh, for the like for, of uh, Lafayette. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was. it's never overcome. I mean, I do call, I mean, the book it says it's the somewhat United <laughs> States, you know, like just like right. our forefathers, we are united enough. I mean, I remember Shelby Foote in that Ken Burns um, Civil War documentary talking about the really um, underrated genius of the founders was their talent for compromise. Um, and I think that is still true. I mean, they're eventually um, they come together enough to declare independence and they come together enough to win that war with um, help from our friends, the French, and they come together enough to ratify the Constitution. And, um, I mean, ultimately, I came to appreciate um, the fact that our national character is basically um, one of squabbling because, (laughs) you know, I mean, the country was... I mean, even in 1775, it's the it's too big, and it's certainly too big now. And I mean, one of the you know one of the great strengths of this country is our diversity and the diversity of religion and and regional diversity, and all of these things create discord. But it's also, I think, our um, our strength. And I mean, it's one reason I end the book talking about places named after Lafayette and I end at Lafayette Square across from the White House where where we protest where we yell at our presidents because I mean that is not just a privilege but a right and I mean I'm always so proud when you like some visiting head of state is in town from some country where no one's allowed to speak their mind and the residents of that country protest their own leader from Lafayette square, because if they did it back home, they'd be arrested, you know? So Mm -hmm. the like upside of all of our bickering is a kind of, you know, freedom, freedom of speech, especially. So when you're researching books like this and you've got uh, a number of them, do you, 
you have that sense of um, happiness or feeling good about um, history? Uh, is that a frequent thing that you come away and say, hey, you know, the bickering isn't as bad as I thought in the beginning. There's a, a way to feel good about history because oftentimes I read history and think, wow, we're really horrible to each other. And um, it seems a little depressing to me. But do you come away oh, ultimately sure. feeling better? I mean, there are, there are good days and bad days. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's still American history. Um, I mean, almost like to me the hardest page to write was um, – like well, right after the part where I describe the the French alliance, like the official treaty of alliance, and how that is met with um, uh, euphoria, like the soldiers at Valley Forge when they get the news that that there's an official treaty of alliance with France, and that France has their back, and that French soldiers and French money are on their way across the Atlantic, the soldiers at Valley Forge yell, long live the King of France. And, you know, but, but also at that moment in Britain, they're, they're thinking, oh my God, this is the end. We're doomed. We should try to get, get these people back. And they have this kind of like half-hearted attempt to like lure their former colonists back to, back to the mother country. You know, it fails obviously, but, um, that moment when you like, that's the moment, basically the tide turns, but it's also melancholy. And I have to write the page like, yes, we like, let's not, you know, let's not celebrate too much right now because like the fact that the colonists don't go back to the British fold. I mean, in Britain, slavery is outlawed in 1833, like 30 years before it is in the in the United States. So if we had gone back to, you know, being a colony of Great Britain, a, a generation and a half of slaves could have been freed um, mm-hmm. earlier. And, and that is a pretty profound and depressing thought. And it's a real 4th of July ruiner, I think. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, that that's how, how grotesque this country's history can be when you find yourself sitting around pondering the humanitarian upside of sticking with the British Empire, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, like, history can be a very devastating to encounter and it can be a kind of devastating way to make a living sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, but my pre, I mean, my previous book was on, um, how the native Hawaiians lost their country. So this one definitely has a lot more like high points, I would say, you know, I mean, there's something kind of, uh, you know, there's that day when they decided all men were created equal. That was a great day. There's that day when Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown. Um, there's that really nice summer night in New Jersey after the Battle of Monmouth when Washington decides to sleep there on the battlefield amongst his men, and he and Lafayette kind of fall asleep side by side under an apple tree. You know, there there's mm-hmm. like real friendship. I mean, besides the fact that uh, all of the like infighting and backbiting there's so much real friendship amongst these guys especially amongst um washington's inner circle you know so there are there are always things things to latch on to okay and i'm curious about uh, you say like there are things to latch on to are those the things that um when you go to a place like 
the the battlefield you were describing and you look for which is probably isn't there anymore the the apples trees and things like that that you sit and think this is where you know these good moments happen and this affects you in in that way is that what keeps you coming back into the game which can be as you said depressing but on the other hand here are these moments, here are these places that you can have that kind you're of... Just talking, you're talking about that, and I'm just thinking of all the people that day who died of heat stroke. Um, <laughs> but, you know... Um, nice. It's a good segue. Uh, I to- mean, the one thing I love about going... I mean, yes, I mean, there is a kind of certain... I don't know why it is, but just thinking about, oh, they were here, is uh, there's a certain, like, inherent excitement to that. But I've kind of learned, I mean, it kind of comes from starting out in journalism and and not being a historian, but I've sort of learned, like, going into a thing, whatever preconceptions I have, they're not that useful and they will be overturned and they just be open to whatever I find or to, like, you know, I mean, like... One of the things I did, like one of the most probably gaudiest things I did was go to a reenactment at the Battle of Brandy of the Battle of Brandywine in Pennsylvania. And it was pretty hokey and you know, there's the battle reenactment and you know, parents taking cell phone pictures of their kids with the George Washington reenactor. But then there was this moment it's like so quiet and subdued but I was walking around all the tents, you know, the um, reenactors, they have their own tents. They are, like, cooking food over fires and, you know, stuff like that. And uh, there's this woman reenactor, and she's sitting on a blanket in a linen dress, and she's winding yarn. And it kind of, it was so, like... um, mesmerizing watching her wind the yarn, but it reminded me of uh, the whole backstory, especially involving colonial women, of the 10 years leading up to the first shots being fired at Lexington and Concord, and um, starting with the Stamp Act in 1765. And one way the colonists, but especially the the women, um, like, uh, you know, resisted taxation without representation was through boycotts and, and and boycotting luxury goods, especially fabrics. And so the 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 women of the colonies kind of banded together to start manufacturing all their own cloth because they didn't want to they don't want to buy it from the British because they didn't want to pay these taxes. And it becomes like the homespun movement becomes kind of like almost the the symbol of this new of these new people, these new Americans, these self reliant people, and it kind of leads up to this crescendo of when George Washington is is inaugurated as president wearing his brown homespun wool suit, you know, and mm-hmm. just like um that moment of like watching that woman winding yarn uh it just kind of inspired this whole reverie of thinking about what these people went through and especially the women like you know one of their boycotts um was obviously against tea and the taxation of the tea and and, you know there's that one group of people we remembered who like dressed up and you know went to boston harbor and you know threw a fit and threw all the tea into the harbor meanwhile like 
just scores and scores of colonial women, they're boycotting the tea by just simply not buying tea. And these are the people who have to, like, get up before sunup and raise the children and tend the livestock and tend the garden and cook the meals and keep, you know, they have the most, like, hardest lives in the world, and they're doing it without caffeine, you know, like... (laughs) That is right. that is an heroic act to me. And so um, sometimes, like, going to these places, whatever I'm looking for, maybe I find it, maybe I don't. But there's always, like, some moment where someone, like, whisks me into some other idea or notion. And, I mean, you can't always plan on it. It doesn't always happen. But um, it's one of the things... That uncertainty and unpredictability is one of the things I I like, I think, Mm -hmm. about my job. And, like, paying attention uh, pays dividends. Okay. One last really quick question in the time we have remaining. You had mentioned, you know, starting out in journalism and then going into this historical vein. And do you get to talk much to historians and they get to say, this is what we like about it? This is the the kinds of things that we have questions about? Is that something you've had the opportunity to do? Not too much. I mean, mostly my, because I mean, they certainly have, I'm guessing they have a lot of uh, contact with one another, but I'm really, um, speaking to readers like I'm a writer not an historian and mostly the people I meet when I go out into the world are the people who don't read other history books you know so Mm -hmm. I almost have the opposite uh interaction of what you're talking about I mean some of them I have met a few like some of the books are used um by college professors like I remember one who was uh cast with the unenviable position of having to teach, you know, 17-year-olds about the Puritans. <laughs> and he seemed, I mean, I wrote a fairly breezy book about the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony compared to the other books about the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And I remember he was quite appreciative, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, we kind of walked different beats, I would say. Right. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not easy to bring uh, a breeziness to the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and uh, those fun people, the Puritans. Um, yeah. <laughs> so my congratulations. Well, yeah, Sarah, thank you. Sarah Vall, I want to thank you very much for talking to me today and uh, recommending the book Lafayette in the Somewhat United States, uh, which is out uh, October 20th, right? Mm-hmm, which has happened. Has happened. <laughs> <laughs> so people yeah. can go out and buy multiple copies of it. Thank you very much, Sarah Vall. Thank you, Doug. The 2015 Columbus Improv Festival is going on this week, October 21st through the 26th. More information is available at crafttheshow.com. I talked to Hitch Cocktails member Bruce Phillips, comedian Kelsey Huff, and local improv impresarios Barbara Allen and Bill Sabo. We started off with Bruce Phillips describing the comedy troupe Hitch Cocktails. Been off for almost three years now. Um, since they opened their new space here in Chicago, we've had uh, sort of an open run on Fridays at ten, and we are an improvised thriller in the style of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, so we generally have about five to seven players on stage, and we get a fear from the audience, and then we completely improvise a two-act thriller in the style of Alfred Hitchcock. 
And what makes it particularly unique is that it's not just the improv as a thriller, but it's also a drinking game. So we're working with a full wet bar on stage, uh, and there is a drinking game for the audience members that you drink every time a uh, Alfred Hitchcock title is mentioned, uh, somebody is shaken, uh, a gun is produced, or a pun is said. And then uh, we, have a, we have our bar on stage, and we drink every time a character is offered a drink. Uh, that person has to accept the drink and has to finish it by the end of the scene. And it's it's about a two hour show, so we we, we abbreviate it for uh, for the festivals and whatnot. But uh, if it gets too short, we oh we gosh. move straight okay. to shots. So <laughs> uh, I like to say that we're now all <laughs> professional <laughs> drinkers. So uh, what kind true. of alcohol <laughs> poisoning problems have you run into with this alcoholics. So basically, stand ups is what you're saying. There it is. <laughs> Okay. So what kind? Right. How do you deal? <laughs> a little with, uh, bit. Um, with that we're much, all pretty. Uh, I mean, we we how, uh, we're always is there very a limit careful. To like this is definitely we make sure that, that uh, we let people know. Like this isn't an alcohol abuse kind of situation. <laughs> uh, we have we have mixed drinks uh, on stage, but they are real alcohol. We have the audience test it and everything. But we we sort of know how to communicate with each other. <laughs> this group's been playing together now for several years. Uh, even our new people have been around for almost six, seven months now, uh, and everyone's very comfortable with each other. Uh, at our intermission, we the first thing we do is we sort of round robin, and we're like, everybody okay? Everyone all right? Who's drunk? <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens if somebody says, I've, I'm a little tipsy? What do you do then? We try to take, we just will, we, we try to take it easy on them. It's really never happens. And then what happens like, if somebody I'm says, I've, I'm a little tipsy, what do you do um, then? But you know, like we, we have to offer the drink for somebody to accept it. So if we know that this person is, is going beyond the ability to finish the show, we're just like, well, let's avoid them. <laughs> let's, let's not give them, let's not offer them the drink. But it's, it's such a fun format because if you, if you ever look, watch, like look back and watch uh, Hitchcock right. films, it's not a far cry from what we do. Almost every other scene in Hitchcock is, you know, my dear, you look, you look very nervous. Settle down. Let me get you a drink. Everything is, let me get you a drink. <laughs> and it's really funny, I have to say, just butt in here, um, that we got a call from the Gateway, which is a, a, a an independent uh, theater here in Columbus Film Theater, and they're doing Hitchcock Hitchcocktober or Hitchcock, t you know, movies all month long in October, and they are so excited about you guys coming. They've been tweeting about it, That's and the great. rage is on. So uh, I, I they're going to be able to uh, promote you guys sort of and in the audience. Yeah. coming to yeah, see it. So super judgy. it's pretty. Yeah, we got to do some ticket <laughs> ticket swapping and, and things so, like yeah, that. Yeah, so that'd be cool. That's great. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, we, we'll have, yeah, we've had um, really good audiences here in Chicago uh, for a while. And, like, the last three shows we've done, we've had, like, groups of 14. Like, groups, like, they'll bring the birthday party or, like, they'll bring a, a, a film group out. Uh, just because they, they, everyone knows Hitchcock, uh, at least the name and sort of, like, the, the birds or Psycho or something, even if you're not a, a, a big oh, film great. fan. And Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's the, I'm going to write that down. Right. You can get college credit for seeing your show. That's, that's the great transition so, for me, So um, now, Kelsey, since we've uh, dove into the, uh, the alcoholic problems of Bruce Phillips, 
Yeah, and, oh, and well, the Hitchcock tells, tell me, tell me about how you were a healthy, oh, you know, I'm a wholesome comedian, so I'm there to teach a stand-up workshop and some storytelling kind of classes. And it actually sounds, uh, you know, all the drinking, it sounds just like you're doing everything a stand-up does every night, but you've marketed it much better. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I am not there in a capacity of drink, but to teach, to teach some folks how to get up on the stage and tell their stories uh, and rock out the mic. Um, and it's my first year, so I'm really excited. Everybody, like I said, everybody seems so uh, jazzed and, and excited about the festival. It's very contagious. Um, yeah, so I teach workshops here in Chicago uh, with uh, Type 5 Productions, which is uh, connected to the Lincoln Lodge. It's Chicago's longest-running independent uh, stand-up. Uh, venue. It's been around forever. And it was originally created, the workshop um, that I teach here anyway, uh, is originally created by Cameron Esposito. That's not the specific workshop I'm teaching um, with y'all, uh, but that's what I do here. I specifically teach an all-female uh, stand-up workshop. And then I also teach uh, storytelling workshops at Story Studio and kind of workshops all across the country. So I'm jazzed. I love going different places and like finding people's stories and getting people who have never, you know, are just too terrified to get up on stage, kind of crack out some jokes. Uh, it's really neat for me. You know, I've spent my time with stand-ups uh, who are who are a crotchety bunch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who are who are uh, who like to be uh, sad and cranky. So it's really neat to get people who are full of life and energy <laughs> once again, um, and are excited to tell their stories. So I, I hope a lot of people sign up and and then sign up for the show that we're doing uh, to get out there and and do stand-up for the first time. I've had a lot of coffee, so I apologize. I know it's a it's a big ramble that I'm giving, but. Uh, <laughs> it it's a great segue from the crotchety comedians uh it's a great movement from there tell me about the all-female improv uh classes i think you mentioned that as you uh, were describing the things that you do yeah yes how so do those the, function really the thing that we focus, focus on in feminine comedy uh, is really creating a non-apologetic environment you know unfortunately uh, a lot of women have been taught like not to take up space and to constantly apologize so that's really the only difference that i see it's like a a lot of women sort of feel like they, they have to have permission to kind of go out there and do it, where that's not the case with the co-ed classes, I find. Uh, guys just kind of go out and, and do what they do. and that, So that's the, really the only the difference, the focus we do in Femcom. It's really creating a non-apologetic environment and helping women find their voice with the support of, of other women. Um, it's pretty amazing. And actually, the class, it's yes, it's improvisers and yes, it's stand-up, you know, you know, Chicago is is a clown school, right? So a lot of people going through other comedy programs will take the class just to get another tool in their belt. However, there are a lot of femcom students that are just professional women, you know, just just lawyers or we have had some cops and, you know, just people who are looking to like work on their public speaking skills and to take mm -hmm. the 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 skills and stand up to their lives. And that's something that as as a comedian who is a teacher, I, I just find thrilling, you know, like people who who aren't in it for for the jokes, really finding their voice through a five week stand up class. It's, it's pretty amazing because they're terrified when they come in, you know, um, they just want to puke. And then by the end, they rock it out. It's pretty it's pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we're trying to make bumper stickers. Okay, so from uh, <laughs> nausea to rocking is the, the tagline you're using here. 
Right. Well, that's a good tagline. So what is it about the class yeah, I mean, I that think uh, you it's think just enables them to really, speak? I mean, you say you're giving um, permission to take Cracking this space, notion and really sort of chipping voice. away this idea that, that you have to be that perfect. Happens. I always say that, you know what, schedule your failures. Get out there and fail publicly in your open mics or whatever you need to do. It's okay. You're never going to be great. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things about stand-up. It's a conversational art form that is continually evolving. So there is no right and there is no wrong. There is just getting up and doing it. And for some reason, that freedom, it gives people, people just get up and I don't know, there's like no pressure anymore. Uh, and I feel like that is sort of reiteration of like, don't ask for permission. You don't need to be perfect. Get up and sell a joke. Because I really think that's like, like, I don't know, 90% of the game. Because if you believe, you can fool the audience enough to, if, to believe. Like, you know, like Fozzie Bear. Just fake it like Fozzie. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so then there's your other tagline. There's their next <laughs> comedy, Fake It Like Fozzie. Uh, so, Bruce, tell me about uh, some of the things that you've done that uh, on stage where you said, I'm oh, going to sell this Every and I'm going to fake it. Uh, and uh, with Hitchcocktails, you know, we're really going to bring it around improv. to I mean, one know, thing that we, fakery. we do tell me uh, about that. a lot, like Chicago, uh, I'm sure is in many communities, but like a lot of us fake it every play night. That's your next many tagline. theaters sort of all over the place. So uh, Hitchcocktails has, is kind of blessed in the fact that we've got a lot of great people that also play with uh, with comedy mm-hmm. sports and, and I.O. and Baby Wants Candy. So we have a fair number of uh, musical improvisers on stage uh i am not one of them uh and yet i am often one that is that is pimped into singing (laughs) (laughs) indeed myself and and uh the founder of the group cj tour uh we can you know we're not terrible singers but like it's not our our fort and uh we do have a piano player that uh underscores all the shows uh, and really lends uh, a lot of atmosphere to it and everything uh and it is not unusual for us to be doing a show and someone to say oh that right you know you you certainly love that girl what's that poem you told me about yesterday that you set to music it's like great <laughs> and honestly it's just we've all learned like you just very well and step out Good. there strong and uh i've improvised many <laughs> musicals in on the stage of hitchcocktails and you just fake it till you make it yep. so how much background have you done with alfred hitchcock movies uh, uh, certainly do you not, constantly not as a go child, back and rewatch no. them is uh, but that in something the last from your two years or so i have, a, I have inside, a, a tradition that i try to watch a hitchcock, hitchcock movie hitchcock. before every show <laughs> right uh, I'll, I'll be home and I'll, we all perform in, in, you know, fine suits and everything. So I'll iron, uh, the shirts and everything I need to do for, for get my suit ready. And I'll put on, uh, Rear Window or North by Northwest or Marnie or Rope, uh, one of the many Hitchcock films and just to get back into that sort of, uh, that theme for it. Um, and I think everybody, I don't know if anyone else in the cast watches as, as obsessively as I do, maybe CJ, uh, who can tell you everything about every show. <laughs> but we all, we all watch, uh, certainly a fair amount of Hitchcock. We definitely, we'll meet up for rehearsals sometimes just to watch a movie and talk about wow. like, oh, notice like this is the way the show starts. This is, uh, these kind of characters that we see often in a, in the Hitchcock sort of genre. Mm. The incompetent cop, the, uh, the, the wrong man, you know, the desperate man, the, uh, the blonde. You know, all those kind of characters. (laughs) 
uh, so in the at last what point year, did you uh, notice that this was an addiction no, but it's, that you it's might a, need one addiction, some sort of treatment for? This is just an intervention for you, right? Yes, this is why we're here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. I'm on Skype. I can just disconnect and run. You're in your house. You're calling from inside your house. <laughs> Guys, right. I, yes, I, that's what I was thinking. I am broadcasting yeah, from the stage we performed the show. We're in your house. You're calling from inside your house. Yeah, I just thought set it up. I'd set up like live from kind of style. Really? That's cool. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, sure. Uh, Well, we're in the the main theater, uh, which holds about uh, 60, 75 people here at the Annoyance in Chicago. And I am uh, right next to our piano uh, that we used to play the show. And if you follow us on Twitter, at Hitch Cocktails, you can see a picture. Excellent. That's cool. So, uh, Kelsey, are you also in a theater, uh, or are you? I am. She's uh, right behind. I'm currently on the toilet. Excellent. So, uh, Kelsey, are you also in (laughs) a theater, or are you? Okay. (laughs) Nice, nice. Classy. So tell me about how uh, you each got into, and then I, I certainly want to hear from uh, Barbara and Bill about how you got into improv and sort of what it does for you uh, in a, the sense of being a performer, how it feeds you. So maybe we'll start off here and let uh, people finish up. I took, a, I took a couple of classes here business they need to do, and then come back. So, a long, long time ago, Bill, ago, uh, tell me a little and, bit about uh, your background. I think we talked to before to about this, but what brought you in and keeps you going? I met uh, Megan Grano. We, I did the workshop, and she said, uh, you should go talk to my husband, Mike Canale, who's at the Annoyance Theater. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And so we did. We scheduled a trip to mm-hmm. Chicago. We had a workshop with uh, Rebecca Sohn, uh, Megan Grano, uh, Joe Janes. We had a writing workshop. And uh, I was immediately hooked to the Annoyance Theater. The Annoyance Theater is an amazing place in Chicago. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I can I can just picture where where Bruce is sitting exactly. now because we actually <laughs> performed during the uh, uh, improv festival mm-hmm. on that stage. It's cool. a beautiful new space. We started the space on Broadway in Lawrence is where I started taking intensives and classes. And Mick and Jennifer are just super super people. And the mm-hmm. people at the Annoyance just I mean if if you go to the Annoyance and you take some classes and you don't want to do this, there's really something wrong with you and you should probably just go away. But uh, <laughs> it really, really is a wonder. I, I really feel that strongly about the Annoyance. That's how I got started. And then we just, uh, I, I like to have uh, a lot of people from the Annoyance doing workshops here and going there to do them. They're very, very... Uh, do you get frequent flyer miles or are you taking the big bus? Uh, I, I haven't taken the mega bus yet, but That's I usually drive. Yeah, I usually drive for six hours. Uh, actually, we took a class on Saturday morning. Do you get Maria frequent Cortez flyer miles, or you take a big ago. bus? We took uh, one of the annoyance classes, the and we drove up yet. every Saturday morning. Uh, we got that's the great equalizer. Yeah, I usually drove drive. to Chicago, took the class for two hours, and drove back home. You know they have these things called hotels. <laughs> yes, they do. But keep you from twelve hours. You know they have these things called hotels sprinkled along along the way that might keep you from 12 hours of driving in a day. But All right, uh, Barbara, yes. tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into it because that will lead us into how okay. the event started, oh the 4th Annual it. Columbus Improv Yay. Festival. Well, I feel like I'm at the me debate because I want to answer her call. <laughs> my, my crush is bigger um, on you, Bruce. Can I just have a major crush on Kelsey, and I can't wait till she's here because we have – it's so true. You too, Bruce, but – Kelsey in particular. but um, Bill, Bill. <laughs> my crush is bigger on you, Bruce. Okay. Right, yeah. But what I really love about what Kelsey said is we 
we, our spirit here is that everyone matters and we like to create opportunities. Um, the last couple of years, we've had some all female classes here in Columbus and they've just been a breath of fresh air. I remember a few women coming into the class and say, finally, this is for me. And it's been great. And we've developed a all female group called Sassy Do Yay! out of that and have been performing uh, every month for the past two years. And we've been combining storytelling and stand up. So and, and improv, so we can't wait to have Kelsey come see our show. Um, and and it's just been amazing when you lead with that kind of spirit. We also created a stand-up night that we do the last Monday of the month, and uh, it's been a space for people to try it all out. So uh, we've developed this new kind of community of people who just want to try. And there's been some amazing people come out and, and headline, and uh, we've had high schoolers, we've had uh, middle-aged ladies and guys and, and comics that are are trending and just growing really big so it's uh i appreciate the spirit that you guys both have for improv yeah. so uh but for me i got started in high school um burpee cd from denison university uh where steve carell we were not the same year he's much much older than me not that much but uh safe years enough but um they came to my school and i just was really taken with what they did and so for many years um, I would go to Chicago, I would study, I would use improv in the work I do in my professional life. And so um, was able to start teaching and working with Columbus Unscripted about seven years ago, and or f- five to seven years ago. Um, we teach and we try to bring performance to everybody. Kelsey Huff, what led you to where you are today? Well, I actually started as most, uh, I think, people in Chicago do start as an improviser. So I went to Columbia College for radio because I saw... I watched Good Morning Vietnam and I thought that's what radio was like and I was wrong. What I really <laughs> liked was improv and I just didn't know how to, I didn't have a word for it. So um, I started taking classes uh, with Brian Posen at Columbia and then I went to Second City and IO. I did all that kind of thing. And then what I found out about myself is like I, I just was always like, I was one of those folks who would sit back and watch a little too much. So I started doing solo stuff just to sort of strengthen my own voice and I found that I just loved it. I just, I saw the neo-futurists and I just loved what they did. Um, uh, so then I sort of kind of crept more into the world of solo performance, did a lot of festivals, fringe festivals and uh, one woman shows. And then I thought, well, I'll just bring the stories about my dad into bars. They'll love it. And they did not. They did not love it. So I had to learn the art of editing and stand up uh, came in. I took a I actually took Femcom. I took the class and fell in love with uh, the art of stand-up. And the thing that I noticed, because every once in a while I'll still go back into the world of improv, I do enjoy it, and it's given me a stronger voice. Like having this solo career, it really has helped me out a lot. And I'm a stand-up who has does a ton of audience stuff. I, I And you can see this with stand-ups that come out of Chicago, and I don't know if it's because like improv is just in everyone's blood here They'll just chuck out their set and talk to people. Uh, there's this real fresh feel about a lot of uh, Chicago stand-ups, and I really do think it's it's because of the improv. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. because Midwesterners want to talk to people more than maybe New Yorkers <laughs> who want to be left alone. <laughs> maybe, um, things maybe. like that. Um, yeah, we're, we're passive aggressive. Isn't mm-hmm. that what they say? Uh, why would you say that about us? <laughs> what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Here's some ranch dressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, that's funny. The ranch dressing thing I've just recently heard in like the last year or so. And, um, you know, I'm living in Columbus. I came from Toledo. Yeah, the home of ranch. 
branch. And um, like my daughter had a friend over and she goes into the refrigerator, takes out the ranch dressing and really just puts it on everything. Yeah. And it, I was like, you're a stereotype. Get out. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I just did a solo show about um, my family and all of our lovely alcoholism, and it's called Ranch Dressing. Ranch <laughs> oh Dressing and other coping mechanisms. Yeah. Great. Do you like the full ranch or the reduced calorie? Oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a full ranch kind of gal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's part of what makes you, quote, an infectious joyousness that makes you happy to be alive, uh, uh, which is yeah. a, a quotation straight from your uh, bio. Yeah. Uh, who who described you that way? How did that happen? <laughs> My, well, I go and I do uh, shows out west. So it was a as a lovely gentleman out in Boulder, Colorado, who I think yeah just just liked my cheeks and my personality. You know, asking for change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good, good, good. I don't I don't see that in your bio, Bruce. Um, <laughs> that you're infectious dresses, but you have been. Uh, in the Tony Award-winning musical Hairspray, above, above the largest cruise ship in the world. That is true. That is awesome. what, that is true. what part were you in Hairspray? Uh, I was uh, Wilbur, Tracy's father. Mm. Nice. That show. I was in the. I was the inaugural cast. So I was the first cast, and then I came back for cast four as well. Okay. Oh, wow. So, how has been you know in something that's more. Uh, traditional theater affected the way that you work as an improviser? Do you feel hemmed in when you're in traditional theater? A uh, real good question. Actually, um, I, especially for Hitchcocktails, I think that uh, everyone says to be a good improviser, you know, you should, you need to be a good actor. Like the best actors mm-hmm. make good improvisers. And I think that's very true, but I think it's especially true uh, with, with Hitchcock. Um, yeah. Everyone in our show, I think, is a real good actor. There's a lot of moments that they, you have to let it just sort of land and breathe and really bring like it's not all it's not all comedy it's not like right. fast paced like game based improv or something it's it's really uh, relaxed and I actually I have a theater degree and it's what I went to school for and I work with uh, a couple other theaters in Chicago uh, straight theater legit theater whatever you want to call it I'm also an artistic associate with a group called Sideshow Theater Company oh, cool. uh, here in Chicago that performs outside of uh, or a resident company at Victory Gardens. And I think that theater training, I mean, I use it all the time, but, but especially in Hitchcocktails. Okay. Kelsey, do you have a, a background like that, or, or Bill or Barbara? Is that something that you're bringing to the table, having been in, in plays before, or a theor- theatrical background? I, yeah, I do. I mean, I'm from a pretty small town uh, where there was th- things like improv or things like anything else didn't really count. So I've been in a lot of productions of... Uh, are you a good man, Charlie Brown? <laughs> so I got that. I got that under my belt. Um, but yeah, like I said, I went to Columbia for radio and then theater. So I, it's the straight play world, I was a part of for a long time. And then as soon as I started writing my own stuff, I got real weird about saying other people's words. I'm a real jerk. I don't know what my problem is. <laughs> yeah. Probably with energy, though. Yeah. Well, yes, an infectious, I think that is now an infectious oh, no. jerk that makes you happy to be alive. I sound yes. like a really delightful jerk. STD, don't I? <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. I'll leave it to the improvisers. Oh Bill! I just want to, uh, to segue in here. Um, we uh, uh, last A year ago, June, Barbara invited us to a... Uh, to a TEDx, and the TEDx was held. You know, you guys know what TEDx is. A TED mm-hmm. Talks. This is. Mm-hmm. It was held in the uh, Marion Correctional Institute in Marion, Ohio, and uh, they. Uh, it was called Refolding the Box, 
And at that time, they talked to Barbara and I about doing some stuff there with improv mm-hmm. in, at Marion. And it's been probably, I think, January we started. We've been going every Monday. I've been going every Monday absolutely. and doing this uh, improv program there. And it is uh, just absolutely freeing for the guys. And I mean that literally. They, they come up for two hours on Monday and, and feel like they're no longer in prison. And uh, I think, Bruce, there's a possibility, and I'm still working on the logistics, that we, we might do another workshop there. Uh, and I think I heard from Chris Kerbick today that you guys are open for it. So that might be something oh, yeah. also that's happening during that festival weekend that, that we can uh, uh, catch up on. But, you know, that's just something that's that in my life, being in the service industry, and Barbara introducing us to that has been, it's led now to three different programs at Marion using improvisation and theater. So well, kind of like you said, Kelsey and Bruce, we say yes to whatever possibility yeah. comes in front of us. We believe, like you guys, it's in our blood. So uh, this was such an opportunity for us to be with Marion and uh, to do Skyped in shows where... Yeah, we Skyped uh, in from the, right. uh, from the Chicago Improv Festival, and from the, the Annoyance. Yeah, right where you're sitting, oh, Bruce. Cool. We Skyped yeah. in with Marion Prison and... Um, there's a female prison here in Columbus, well, nearby too, Calcium. I'm thinking there's some work for you here yeah, too. Yeah, so How often do that you sounds get... amazing, though, that kind of connection. And Absolutely. That sort of, like you said, that freedom, that sounds yes. fantastic. How often do you get that kind of offer? There's a female prison there's here. Prison I think there's some work for you. <laughs> That's where all the women More go that didn't think. get permission. <laughs> it Congratulations. a lot. Uh, tell me about working with uh, the Marion Correctional Institute. I'm curious about the different ways you see the people that are in there processing maybe than in other ways because like you said they okay. they live very <clears throat> close cloistered not cloistered um that may suggest something about my feelings of religion they <laughs> they live these really uh constricted lives yeah they, live, looking they for. live behind and, razor wire yeah. right it's uh it's true and some of them at marion there are about 2500 inmates at marion um, we have about 250 in general programs. We have probably 50 total in improv and theater. Um, they, uh, some of them are getting out and, and they're coming back, you know, to their neighborhoods and to their homes. Uh, so, so these programs are, are targeting communication skills. One of the, uh, classic games in, um, improv is, is called Take That Back. And it's, it's, you know, scene starts and then, then the, the director of the scene or the, the caller of the scene will say, uh, take that back, and they have to re, restate something totally different, and they'll be take that back, and they do it again. Well, they have been using that in prison at Marion to, um, to think about using prison jargon on the street. And when they do, they call each other on it. Mm. And, and when they make reference to some prison jargon, they'll say, take that back, mm. you know, in, in the block, in the uh, lock. And so that's, that's one way that they're doing it. Um, what do you think that does for them when they, they take back the jargon? They're learning ways of communicating without using that jargon for when they get out? Is exactly, that yeah. yeah, And, and that, that's actually the goal. And, you know, that wasn't something that we suggested. It's something that they did spontaneously cool. with the use of that game. Um, the other things, they're, they're, they're being able to just – as Kelsey said, uh, we we let them fail, and that's a big thing with the annoyance is, you know, just getting up there and just failing. And, and if you're failing, just fail more. Just go into it. Go to the fear. Go to the failure. Just just do it and 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 feel good about the fact that you failed. And you will have times when you succeed, and, and that's what we're seeing at Marion in a in a big big way. Uh, they did a, a TEDx salon not too long ago. It was called The Art of Conviction. And it was theater, it was dance. And if you, you know, you see four guys, four inmates in prison dancing, doing modern dance, it's just like, it's kind of uh, transformative. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it changed a lot of my stereotypes that I had from the, you know, back when, well, I, I'm not that old, but, you know, I remember stories about the 60s when, when people were... You're from the 60s. <clears throat> Shh. <laughs> I read when, a book about the '60s. Yeah, I read a book about the '60s. Yeah, that I wrote that. Um, there's a, there's a, you know, you, you think that you've broken down your stereotypes and you, you've marched in women's rights marches and civil rights marches and anti-war marches, and then all of a sudden you go into a prison and you realize this huge stereotype that stares you right in the face, and these are these are human beings who made a mistake, you know, mm-hmm. some, a big mistake uh, in, in some cases, but. They're still humans, and, and, and this has been, you know, something that I've been able to use improv in, Absolutely. you know, to, to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So See, I know. think that's, that's great because a lot of people sometimes forget uh, or aren't as, as nerdy as me uh, that knows that, you know, like improv, all of that came out of right. games. Exactly. Out of, uh, Social justice. Right. Yeah, Viola Spolin right. created a book about playing games with children sure. to uh, use communication. It was Absolutely. used in therapy. Right. Uh, and, you know, that – transformed into uh you know keith johnston doing theater sports and comedy sports and started doing that sort of game-based improv and then that became longer form theater you know but all of that sort of came out of this uh these games that were inherently about communication Communication. and about how to listen better right Right. social skills right well about being present and being Mm -hmm. vulnerable and being Mm -hmm. authentic and like you said any improviser that gets in their own head or lets their ego take over it's a lost game but when you can be in the moment and be present the world's the possibility it's just amazing it's, to me, it's fascinating about the idea that no matter what kind of improv you see or performance, uh, it's always just a different packaging of, of those core – you know, in improv, we talk about finding the game of the scene, whether it's Hitchcocktails or it's comedy sports or it's uh, a longer form or, or anything like that. It's always just at its root a game about communication and listening to the other person. I'm really interested by your use of the word game because it – seems to me like a, the stuff that they're describing with the Marion Correctional Prison, it's it's like there should be a different word for it. It doesn't seem like game really captures what you're going for because with the game, there's a sense of not having, um, I don't know, value or not having consequence. But what you're talking about, like these set pieces do have a lot of value. They do have this consequence to them that isn't about simply doing whatever you want, right? And even though improv is, you know, be free, be open, there are some, some rules, like you said. You know, they say take it back and they have to, there are things that they have to do that there are consequences to other people's speech. Is that something that you talk to them much about or you talk about your, with yourselves I, in improv? I don't, I don't personally talk a lot about the rules and Bruce probably knows why I don't <laughs> talk about the rules. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think Doug, the game, I think, is, is a pattern. It's a pattern in the, in the scene. It's a pattern in life. I think that you find, and, and some of them are, some of them work, and some of them don't. But I think ultimately, if you find that pattern and, and you can stick with that pattern, and it's a good pattern. Then it's it's. I mean, maybe that's the game, Bruce. I don't. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, for me, game is. Uh, yeah, I guess it it can it can have a sort of a connotation mm-hmm. of being a little more lighthearted. But I think that we all play games in sure. life. You know, like you got to know. I remember I had a great teacher way back in high school. You know, when we were taking tests, and he was like, "I'm going to teach you guys the the game of getting through these AP tests." You know, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is how you write the paper. Sure. This is the game you got to play. Right. And I think once you start looking at life and looking at communication, looking at that business meeting or that show or whatever as a game that has strategy to it, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it's a lot easier. It, fe- it makes you feel a little more rooted. Bruce, you had said at the beginning that people throw out a fear. 
mm-hmm. for Hitchcock tales. And um, one of the things that I think has come up, a, a thread that's come up several times, is it's letting that improv is about letting go of your fears. It's about having the okay, uh, the acceptance of failure. So tell me about some of the fears that that you get, and do you think that that's sort of wrapped up? In, into it, that people are, are throwing these things out so that they can again move past them. D- Doug's an academic. That was getting that was getting deep. There. <laughs> it is possible. I will say that we make it probably a little more uh, a little more silly than that because okay. we will ask because I think it comes to us the reason we we landed on a fear is our suggestion is much more from the genre aspect mm-hmm. because we'll ask for not a normal fear because we do want it to be something a little bit more unusual uh but so much of hitchcock is based on those on that element of fear you know vertigo about heights or the birds um or uh just general murder to learn about the columbus improv festival happening this weekend visit crafttheshow.com If you've not had an opportunity, you should check out The Sundial from The Ohio State University, a humor magazine with a long history, including having R.L. Stein on staff. I recently talked to some of the students from Sundial, and what follows are a couple of their articles. The first is from Lauren Moliterno. Local woman files for divorce after quiz claims soulmate is Chris Hemsworth. Columbus, Ohio. After taking a quiz on BuzzFeed.com called Which Famous Chris Should You Date Based on Your Zodiac Sign, Helen Warren decided to file for divorce from her husband of 32 years because the site revealed her true love is Chris Hemsworth. I love Henry. I've never had a problem with him, but I just can't pass up this opportunity, said Warren when asked about the decision to leave her husband and move to Australia, the native land of her so-called new bosom buddy. When asked about his opinion, Helen's ex-husband, Henry, responded, I don't blame her. If I had the chance to sleep with Thor, I'd divorce me too. Plus, I took my own quiz on BuzzFeed that would tell me what celebrity I was most likely to marry in a rowboat off the coast of the small island Monariki and got Mila Kunis. So I'm going to try and follow up on that. While the ex-couple was ecstatic about their new endeavors, they offered no word on the custody of their 8- and 10-year-old children. After more research, it was discovered that Helen's sister, Alice Hanks, removed the children from the house- household upon receiving the news from her sister, When asked for comment, Henry continued, The site also said Chris would be my celebrity BFF. We're already in the works of planning a double date. Hanks plans on adopting the children, since she has also taken a quiz on BuzzFeed that claims that she will have two kids. She has decided to neglect the distinction that the father should be Chris Pratt, because she has had a soft spot for Chris Evans ever since she saw him as Captain America. And now a Sundial Humor article from Jackie Shreves. These are Common Workplace Problems and Their Solutions. The situation. You've overslept because you're stuck in a cycle of perpetual self-loathing. This is your third late arrival this week, and people are starting to notice. The solution. Move into your workplace. This is the best way to cut excess clutter from your life by condensing all of your worldly possessions into one cubicle. As a bonus, every day is instantly better with your jammies so readily available. No one can be self-loathing in their jammies. And now all of your coworkers can admire your cool posters of Halle Berry from Catwoman that used to hang in your bedroom. The situation. The boss is milling around and you want to make a good impression. This could make or break your future here. The solution? Ask her how her baby is doing. She doesn't have a baby, but she's like a grown woman, right? Isn't her life kind of pointless without a baby? Somebody's bound to have a baby and an iPhone full of photos that they are dying to share. Go find that baby. The situation. Phone calls are pouring in and it seems like everyone needs you to do something. There is not enough time and the stress is building. The solution. 
Hang up on whoever you are currently talking to. Then pick the phone back up, and whenever a coworker walks by, shout, Jensen, where are those reports? Into the receiver. Who is Jensen? What reports? No one knows, but it sounds official. You must be busy. Better ask Claire to make these copies. The situation. There is a new dress code being implemented after the person that delivers the mail got a little too casual on Casual Friday last month. The solution? Show your commitment to the decisions of upper management. Take their words seriously and put together a red carpet look every day. If you feel you're running out of options, start layering. Tuxedos over ball gowns. Tuxedos over other tuxedos. Tuxedo t-shirts over tuxedos. Tuxedos over tuxedos over ball gowns over tuxedo t-shirts. Sweaters. Nothing is too much. The situation. The fire alarm has gone off and there's smoke coming out of the break room. Good thing you've been through the mandatory fire drills. The solution. Get out of the office now. Don't worry about Claire or non-baby having boss. Clearly your impressive display of athleticism will convince them that the new position opening up is meant for an employee with your fight or flight know-how. The situation. The copier is out of toner. No one is really sure what toner is, but gosh darn it, the machine always seems to run dry when you have to do some toner using things. The solution? Toner is basically some kind of dark powder, what you might call it, which is basically coffee grounds. Substitute and enjoy. The situation. You've developed some tingly feelings for a fellow employee, but office romances are not permitted. The solution? Kill enough people until it is. Don't want to kill? Talk it over with HR. Don't want to talk it over with HR? Kill enough people until it is. The situation. Claire got that big promotion. Apparently she did her assigned tasks and didn't scream into the phone and threaten murder or whatever. The solution, ask about her baby. I hope you've enjoyed this hour-long special from Craft. And you'll join me Wednesdays at 8 p.m. for our regularly scheduled slot when we talk to people such as guests coming to the Thurber House, six-string concert artists, and all kinds of different people who are creative. Don't forget to donate to Central Ohio's NPR station, WCBE, and you can check us out online at craftthashow.com. Till next time, this is Doug Dangler. Be creative.